Hello, everyone. Welcome to QMinders Service Intelligence Podcast, where we interview customer support and customer service experts from around the world. Today, we have Dana Husman from Australia at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Well, nominally, I'm, I'm Australian. I, I, I did grow up here. That's good. And uh, I will not be bringing like a longer introduction at the moment. Dana has worked in a number of big companies and smaller companies as a consultant or a operator, how would mm-hmm. you say? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, in-house consultant, general kind of senior manager type person. Absolutely. Just a, a person who helps people do things in whatever way needs to be done. So, Dana, let's get started. Tell us a short story about yourself. Okay, well... Um... I don't know. I think uh, my experience with, uh, you know, getting to know the QMinder team and Rauno and everyone actually helped me formulate an understanding of myself in some ways. And I just mentioned that, like, I help people. And that's really glib, I guess. And it's very, very broad because we all do in some way. But a lot of, um, a lot of my time working with customer service and working in operations in companies is... It's kind of like, I mean, consultants have this luxury of coming from the outside and like kind of cutting away the noise. Um, And I do that by thinking, okay, what is it that we should be counting? And let's count it and then let's change it. And that's, I think like we were talking about this just before the call started, like measuring aspects of your own life and, and quantifying things. And in technology companies, we have legions of intelligent people there's engineers you know data analysts and highly qualified people highly quantitative people as well who build these complex systems like matching algorithms and forecasting platforms and collect so much data so much of it real time and like and their biggest problems are how do we store this data how do we parse it how do we create data tables where we can search it and then how do we display it and then you know create these big visualizations and oftentimes like it doesn't matter the size of the company i'll go through it and say all of, most of this is not useful. What's this number that we should be measuring? And there's usually something, in fact, there always has been something really big and critical to the way the company works that no one can measure very well. And I end up just walking around and pointing at things and counting them literally, or just writing them down. At most complicated, I make a Google sheet and then I make numbers, like I make analysis about that and say, okay, this is where we are, this is where we need to go. Mm-hmm. and then just keep and then I remind them the next day and then the next day and the next day and then after like a few months people get it and they go oh okay that's what we should be doing and then that's when things start to really start changing so in a nutshell that's what I do mm-hmm. I point at things and I count them <laughs> well I decide what to count and then point at things and count them and then try and like move the organization towards counting that thing mm-hmm. and that moves the tide of of uh of the company I've that's that's my project experience yeah, very okay. broadly so it's like our fascination now with, with being able to track everything. Now you go in and then just say, this you need to track, this doesn't mean anything. This you yeah. need to track, this doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. For example, um, in one company uh, I was working in, they were very proud of their MPS, mm-hmm. Net Promoter System um, or Net Promoter Score, yep. you know, which is great. Like they had a number in the very high 80s and 90s and Everyone, everyone loved their service. And when you looked into why, it's because like the stuff they were doing was so high tech, so advanced, and they were giving it away for free. So of course everyone loved them. So what did this tell me? Like people were 
it didn't tell them anything new and they were wasting time measuring this thing that didn't help them change. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, there were like other metrics about the operations, like how many deliveries are we doing per, app, per hour per like delivery unit that they weren't measuring. And that was why they were flatlining in number or actually declining slowly. Whereas it should have been catapulting up. If people were really that happy with it, it should have been accelerating massively. Mm -hmm. so that's one example. Um, and then in, in, in other situations, I don't want to like uh, rag on NPS because actually when working with Lyft, NPS was one of those things that was transformative. Mm -hmm. um, NPS and customer satisfaction surveys were one of those things that we, we could tie to a, like the business growth and say, hey, this is going well. Um, maybe, maybe we can show that the business is doing well because of this. And we, we did show that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, interesting to see nowadays that a lot of things you can wreck and then some things it's harder to put a number to. For example, in, in the marketing world, like how do you measure word of mouth marketing or something like that? Mm. And sometimes in also some customer service or customer support functions, there are some intangibles there. But your experience at Lyft, also with, with building what you called hubs, you were yeah. able to prove as kind of the return on investment for building these customer service locations. So mm -hmm. maybe you can share this, uh, this story about the hubs. Okay, well, I joined Lyft when the first hub was already being built. Um, so firstly, I can't say I built the hubs. It's one of those things like no one person builds 200 locations around the country. It was built by a lot of people and it was happening without me anyway. But my job was to figure out if there was a business case for it and also just to organize the thing. And, uh, and, and, and just to stop you there, hub is, was then just like a physical customer service location where the Lyft drivers can come to and get things yeah. sold. Yeah, okay. exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. A hub for us, it started because we rented office space in Seattle that came with a free shop front at the bottom of the building. And so we thought, all right, well, we have this shop front. What are we going to do? And again, I didn't do this. This is like, you know, the real estate team said, okay, let's get some designers in. Um, let's get some furniture going and make it all lift brandy because they have a very strong aesthetic. It looks great. And they got this furniture built and all this custom stuff. It looked fantastic. Um, they put some people in there and they said, okay, now drivers, you can come and can get helped. And, uh, and they came and it was, we, you know, they, we felt our way along like we felt felt out what we were doing and, and made it up as we were going so the first staff who were there said okay well i guess we'll just help them with whatever they need you know and they came in and they needed help signing onto the app or changing some details or getting reactivated pay issues and there were things that we could do right then and there like we could help them download the app and install it and there was stuff we couldn't do like figure out why they hadn't been paid because our staff who were just casual staff mostly or even even our full-time staff didn't have the right access to our backend systems because of privacy and protections and things. Pay is very sensitive. So, you know, as time went on, we thought, all right, we have to find out wh whether it's worthwhile doing these things um, for our customers. Like, is it worthwhile having a place where drivers can come and get their very complicated issues sorted? Or is it a huge waste of money? Because we're paying rent, we're paying for staff, Everyone knows that the cheapest customer service is what you do over the phone and via Zendesk, via emails. It's much cheaper. 
And in big companies, especially ones that were thinking of going public, at that point we were thinking of going public, you have to drive down interaction costs. And so we, we had metrics to measure that. And you know, it was like cost per interaction, cost per thousand rides, cost per thousand tickets. We were, we were pushing all that down. And so bringing in hubs and putting people in real estate, bad idea. Why are we doing this? And that was my job, figure it out. Like, should we do this? Should we do more of them? Well, why are we doing this? And so rule, thing number one was at least collect information that was important to us. And this is where I started working a lot with QMinder. Um, my predecessor, um, a very uh, good friend of mine named Tank, he, um, he had set up QMinder. I don't know how he'd found it. I think he just Googled Q management app and uh, App Store SEO paid off. Installed it, they were, had it running. And, I, and you know, I saw that you could download data and I also saw that you could you know, pull data from the API. And I like APIs. I thought, ooh, API, I can query this thing and, and I can connect it to Google Sheets and do all kinds of automatic stuff like that. So I started playing around with that. And uh, we used that to answer the questions. Firstly, how many people are coming to the hub? Secondly, why? We had categories that we could group them into. And thirdly, we could use the API to trigger customer satisfaction surveys um, that would send them a text message saying, please fill out the survey and then we'd collect the response. And we got a very good response rate, something like 20% of people would fill out the survey based on their interaction. So we started to answer the question of how many people were coming, why, and how happy they were with the service generally, and also how happy they were with the various kinds of service. And we saw that we had really, really good resolution rates on difficult problems that these customers otherwise couldn't, that generally our drivers couldn't get resolved as easily by over email. And I made it a point of, you know, every time I visited one of these locations to act as an agent. So I would see what are these, what do drivers want? And it's no big surprise, like they were, there were the same kinds of complicated things that if you had to go to a bank, like, you know, I know that, you know, Estonia is very tech forward and you can do everything online. So if you had to go to a bank office, like to a teller and, or, and talk to them, it would have to be a really important reason for you to do that. Mm -hmm. Intractable thing requiring lots of paper. This is why people came to our hubs. They were at wit's end. They couldn't figure out why they didn't get paid. They were not getting the service they required from uh, online because online couldn't figure it out. Or maybe there was a communication barrier. There often was sometimes a language barrier, sometimes just very difficult to articulate the problem. Um, you know, like uh, it's difficult to, things like, you know, screenshotting your bank accounts and all that stuff is hard. You know, it's like, I, even I get frustrated by it. So they would come in with all those papers and say, look, you know, I, I should have been paid this here and this here, this here, and I got paid this here and this here, and I don't understand how these numbers match up. And we would sit there with them you know, open up a, a spreadsheet and do the math with them and, and then find the gaps if there were any and then fix that for them or, or show them, hey, look, actually it all adds up. And we're talking thousands of dollars sometimes and it was serious stuff. So these were the things that we could solve in person for them that would sometimes take 30 minutes, but you leave behind, we thought, a very loyal driver. You know, this is someone who's come in with a difficult problem and we help them, we we're patient with them and they leave happy. And that was, that was what we were trying to say. This is why we have to have in-person service. It's to create this loyalty. It's, and it's to, you know, firstly, it's the right thing to do to help people if they're working for you or working, you know, as 
with your company. And then secondly, like help them do what it takes for them to stay on your side. So over time we measured these interactions and we, you know, we uh, threw a lot of like backend math and nothing really that fancy. We could say that, hey, look, the drivers who come in and get something solved are this much happier than the ones who don't get it solved or the ones who can't get it solved online. Or the ones who come into a hub are this much happier than the ones who don't come into a hub. And look, we can also show that the ones who leave with a positive result end up driving more afterwards, and somewhat causative. You know, it's like very noisy not data, but somewhat enough, causative enough. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, eventually we said, look, there's there's a case to do this. And you know, I had a lot of support from from Jason, my analyst, who, you know, sweated <laughs> for days trying to put this data together to show this case. But um, yeah, we, we could show it. And that was that was the core of how we use QMinder. It was like a mixture of QMinder and surveys and, and backend driver data that, you know, together was like, a, this is like our happiness and loyalty generation mm-hmm. platform. And then thanks to being able to show that data, you were able to then make a business case to open up more hub locations. Mm. Yeah, uh, it would. Yeah, it became a stronger business case, mm-hmm. I would say. And, and it, you know, like hubs were a point of pride um, back then. We had a stronger manage local management model um, for every major city and region would have a GM or VP of some kind. Mm-hmm. And you know, having a hub there, you know, like a really built-out nice office was a, definitely a point of pride. Like, look at this thing; it's shiny, it's purple and pink, and it's got mm-hmm. people can come there and get helped and. They loved it, you know, the GMs loved it. And so we wanted the case at least to, to build more and then also to not shut them down. They're very expensive, you know, and it ranged in price, but American real estate gets very expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the design and build costs were as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we did a lot of stuff. Like we looked at the competitors as well, look at their hubs. Um, Uber at that point had their green light hubs. I haven't kept up, so I don't know if they still do. I did shut some of them down, I know. And um I don't remember any of the other businesses, what they were doing. Yeah, but they were very similar. Just ours were aesthetically nicer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and, and you were able to actually um, gather the data. I think that's, <laughs> that, that's, that, that, that's the story that we are really into here yeah. that QMinder, how to use the data that you create with, with your customer service or support and then, you know, use this to, to, uh, to improve, improve your service. Yeah. yeah. At the time, and gather, we did, we did get, gather the data, but I had to get it from so many places and I became, you know, the difficult thing for me was putting it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, combining three different systems, survey information, uh, no, four systems, I think it was. In fact, I have a diagram showing more of these things. Um, you know, we had like surveys, we had uh, Zendesk tickets, we had internal Lyft data, we had QMinder data, and I can't remember what else, SMSs at some point as well. Mm-hmm. Putting all those things together was not fun um, for me because mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not something that I, I really enjoy. Like the, the, the mess of the, the Google Sheets became too big for me. I didn't want to create more SQL databases. And the reason I was sitting 
talking too much to the humanity team was I was like, hey guys, can you build this for me, please? Can you please build me a surveying platform or a better data collection platform? Or maybe even could you build us an internal tool so we can integrate it directly? Um, that really has to be like the, the future direction of this kind of business, I think. It's like when you can, yeah, when you can have all, the, all those things in one platform, mm-hmm. still respecting privacy concerns, mm-hmm. then um, yeah, that would be that would be the, the Zen point. Mm-hmm. But I think I think every company ends up building it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned um, the uh, customer satisfaction service. Yeah. Um, how did the, the the collection work at uh, at, uh, at at Lyft? Um, ah, yeah, that was so. When I when I showed up, it was we had a Google survey that we would text to drivers after they left the hub and we had to manually text it to them using an internal tool. And so the problem we had was that uh, drivers or our, our support staff had a tendency to not send the survey to unhappy customers. And I can see that, I can see why. Why would you, it's not even about data. It's like, that doesn't tell me anything. I know they were unhappy, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it just reflects badly on us. And so I can see that, but at the same time, it like, you know, ruins the data because you don't, you don't then have a macro view of, we had these people who are unhappy and they were unhappy because of a big issue. Like they couldn't get reactivated um, because someone complained about them or, you know, they had a pay issue that couldn't be solved because we didn't have the right access. So we couldn't, we couldn't see that if they weren't sending out the essays, uh, sending out the surveys. So one of the first things I did was see that QMinder, like they had a, you know, I think, um, I don't remember, who, I don't know who had built it, Christophs or something, had built like a really nice API that had, it could tell you whenever someone had submitted a ticket. So I had to build a server that would listen, listen for that ticket, and then it would process it and then use another API for Twilio. I think I was using Twilio to send out an SMS survey with a link in it and some custom parameters so that it would pre-populate. And uh, we got higher fill rates that way. So that little, that little server, I just spun up on an external platform on DigitalOcean. And uh, I was paying $5 a month for it. And this is pre-IPO. So, you know, we did, we did things a little bit loosey-goosey and you know, um, random, random servers around the place collecting private data. I mean, it was, it was not good. Um, we had that server running for quite a while. Um, I made sure never to store any data on it though, mm-hmm. uh, just to make sure that, you know, like it was, um, it was totally safe. And eventually it was built into, built into Lyft systems. But for a while it was the bane of the engineering team. They called it the Dana server. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> it, was our, it was our little secret, but that was all before the IPO and before we had to comply with all the stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. we. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. So I understand that then this integration that you set up then started to send out the service automatically mm. instead of the, the, the agents choosing. The, That's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it would do that automatically. Eventually, we thought, okay, we can't use... I remember one intermediary step beyond using... We started to move elements of the server away to Zapier. Um, I mean, I love Zapier. I think it's a great service. We became quickly one of their very big and 
bigger um, users as well. I don't know compared to who, but we were definitely one of the few enterprise users to the point where I had a call with one of their founders and I said, guys, can you set up an enterprise plan for us with some SLAs? And they said, no. <laughs> <laughs> they said no we can't do that and i understood they can't like that's not their their core um modus operandi but i think they do now mm -hmm. I, I like to think that i was part of the influence for that but i haven't kept up with them but mm -hmm. they were a good team as well i wish i got to know them better yeah mm -hmm. so we yeah we had we had you know at one point we had i think Qmander has a zapier integration as well now right they built one for us um like a very beta or alpha one i don't know maybe you don't know uh and they yeah we we used it in Zapier and then we used that to do some stuff, but I don't remember the details. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so cool to see like the start of mentality of, of being able to do things like quick and dirty and then, yeah. then and see and then, uh, and then polish it out when, when, it, when it seems to be, seems to be working. And that yeah. I think often often then uh, starts the downturn of big companies as well, since they, you know, become to, um, like they, 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 they lose the entrepreneurial spark that allows for this uh, uh, I mean, I know. Quick, quick innovation. Really once you're, once you're in post IPO and after a lot of the GDPR regulations and privacy concerns, which are very legitimate, mm -hmm. it's really difficult to do this stuff these days. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to collect data and then use it, mm -hmm. the first step is to talk to the legal team and then tell them, I want to collect this data and use it this way, and then change the terms and conditions and then let everyone read that and then start collecting the data. And so the, I, the, the days of using customer data from like the past to make decisions that you just thought about now in very big companies, that's, that's over. It's a, little bit, yeah. it's a little bit sad, but it's also... It's also good because it knows that, you know, like privacy is it's definitely one of my concerns as well. Mm -hmm. But you can't now go in and, uh, and, and move as quickly as, as you would want to. Because there's a team of lawyers <laughs> happily waiting to tell you that you can't do that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's why my sweet spot is like, uh, you know, Series A, Series B companies that, mm -hmm. you know, have raised an amount of money and growing quickly, but um, where, where it's still a bit of a wild, wild west mentality and you can do a lot of things. Um, like maybe we can go into, in, 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 into what you are doing now a bit later, but I really loved um, uh, how you called your position in, in, in Lyft. Uh, you called it special operations, like a... <laughs> Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, I didn't call it that. <laughs> they, they call it that. That's why it was, you know, it was a job description that was written for me almost. Um, mm -hmm. And the three other people who were with me were very similar in, in different mm -hmm. ways. Um, we, it's kind of a terrible uh, job because it's undefined. Uh, they, the head of ops at that point said, look, I just need people to run special projects mm -hmm. and I need them to be people with mixed backgrounds who can do a variety of things and are happy to change things that, a drop of a hat and can travel at zero days notice. And that was mm -hmm. ideal for me. You know, I was at that time, freshly single uh, in a new country. I knew no one <laughs> and uh, I had a very mixed background, mm -hmm. um, partly consulting, partly finance, a um, little bit of, and a little bit of tech and some of my own startups as well. 
And so that was, it was ideal for me. And the challenge with that kind of role is of course you hire the kind of people who likes to do things themselves their own way. Mm-hmm. So we were all very, I think quite difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like herding wildcats. Um, and our, our boss Neha did a very good job of it, I think. Um, the best the best anyone possibly could. Um, and we, I felt bad, but I, 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 not, I also felt bad at not being a very good employee, but also not being a good employee is what makes you ideal for this kind of job because mm. you're not, we're not employees. We're just in there to figure out what needs to be done, then go and do it. Mm. And um, yeah, since then I've done private consulting, which is the same. And uh, you know, it's, it's the same thing where I, I show up to a place with almost no context and figure out what needs to be done and, and go and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one example of that was, I think um, you know, the first time it was showing up in Tel Aviv for this scooter company called Wind um, that a couple of my friends had joined and I had declined a, an offer for. But they said, look, come, come as a consultant sometimes. And I said, okay. And uh, Wind had this, strange, it had this strange problem where they, their scooter numbers on the road were going down. This is a few years ago now. Um, the company's gone through a lot of evolution since then, so has the industry. Anyway, they had scooters on the road that were just going down in numbers, and we didn't know why. And they said, Donna, go and figure it out. And so I went in and I just did what I was telling you before. Like, like these guys, they were great. You know, they, we had like a really good couple of mechanics that were working really hard and these people running in and out, moving scooters all, all the time. And these two GMs, one of the GMs was really good at like kind of like corralling the team and, and getting them to do stuff. The other GM was going out and finding public parking spaces and stuff. And looked at it all and I was like, why are there, I came in every morning and thought, why are there so many scooters here? They should be out there. And I asked them that and they said, like, they gave me all these reasons. And the next day I, I counted them and I said, why are there 50 scooters charging or like 25 more not charging? And I was like, oh, this, what are all these parts bins are full of? And I counted every single piece in the part bins to their, I think, horror, because it's like, it's kind of embarrassing for someone to be picking through a parts bin and counting hundreds and hundreds of pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's like your, your parents coming into your room and like counting the socks on the floor, you know? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, anyway, I did it and um, it didn't mean anything bad by it. I just wanted to help. And then we had these numbers and they said like, hey, we can build this many scooters. Also, those ones are charging. These ones need to be fixed. Let's hire more mechanics. Let's get people to get these ones out. They have to come in earlier. I'm like, all right. And like within a day, you know, again, this is like early stage startups. They had hired people because they just could. They five more people would come the next day building scooters. Five more people came in deploying scooters. And then the numbers started going down. And it just happened because like, you know, you just count how many scooters are there charging, how many scooters are on the road, how many are in pieces in the bins, and then make it go down. <laughs> That's it. And then eventually they got it. And they were doing it themselves. And I left after a month because I was no longer needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I just went and do it then next when it did it in the next place and so that's the general that's that's tech ops for you in yeah show. so your job as a consultant is to um kind of uh get you out of that job as as, as soon as possible yeah yeah i try to i try to make myself redundant yeah um, and it's not not that hard to I mean, when you have that mindset, everyone's more comfortable as well because you're not trying to steal anyone's jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know that you, you know that they know that you need them to stay. Uh, mm-hmm. You're just trying to make their lives a bit easier mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and otherwise, like aside from that, I just go on with my own life. And you know, mm-hmm. we have the same mentality for our own businesses that we run, which are you know websites and blogs. Um, 
would count the stuff every day, multiple times a day, you know, looking at clicks, looking at conversions, advertising revenue, you know, revenue per page, um, you know, traffic per page sources. And we just measure all that stuff and say, okay, what can we change? Like, mm -hmm. And I actually was thinking about, um, it's a little, it feels a little bit like tending a garden. Um, you know, like I have 500 web pages, roughly, not websites, web pages. Okay. Like, um, and then every day I look at them all and go, okay, which ones are doing well? Which ones are not doing so well? And I look at them historically and this one's growing, this one's declining, you know, maybe I can tend to this one, refresh its content. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a little bit therapeutic that way, but you have to have the right, you have to have the right, like, you have to have the right tools and the right number that you're measuring at least. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the constant challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, um, listening to you and, and understanding how, how your consultant's mindset or, or the fresh perspective that you can bring into stuff because you're not in it, you can kind of, you know, come from the outside and, and, and look at it. I think in, in, in Estonia, we call it um, the, 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 the farmer's mentality in that oh, sense that, that uh, as it's, it's, it's very similar to, to what you said, like tending to a garden. Uh, but it's, uh, it means that you kind of come in, look at things as they are, like in a no, very no-nonsense no way, and then say, this what needs to be done to create mm -hmm. results. And, uh, and it kind of cuts through the fluff of, of what you would kind of expect that this should be this um, kind of complex issue. And then, but it actually can be, managed if, if you just cut away the fluff and then and, and focus focus on the on, on, on the important mm. and so a lot of it's a very human thing as well i mean you can make it like it sound really scientific by talking about the numbers and the quantitative stuff and metrics mm -hmm. and so forth and it becomes like a business school case study but there's this human aspect of it which is just showing up and being like a supervising person and caring and listening um, and, and also knowing what to do really, really helps. You know, it, if I, like, I remember when I, with the, all these teams I helped with wind and all the hubs that I went to with Lyft, um, just being there, just, I mean, I don't want to say like, it's me being there. It's nothing to do with me. It's like someone's here and they care mm -hmm. and they're spending time with us. Um, and also like, I, I was a senior person, not a, like a, executive but i was a senior person who would come there not just for a day to see how they're doing and eat lunch with them then leave i would spend days in each location and sit there and do the work with them and go out with them sometimes and just and just spend a lot of time talking to people to the point where they're like oh man this guy is like really really interest, interested in this and he's really really paying attention so later when i left and i was like you know on slack with them then i was i was a face um I was a person and they were people to me and and like they knew that they could always contact me for any issues they had and I would help them right then and there I would never say I'm too busy or well I was sometimes but I would then I would tell them I'll help you in one hour you know and, but anyway just that human aspect is really important um and it's yeah it's like an attentive parent I guess mm -hmm. having an attentive parent mm -hmm. I think that's like I don't claim to have invented the perfect metrics and I don't think they exist. And I also think that every two years, the way we do things changes, the reason we do things changes. 
So you can't boil it down to having good metrics. You have to have like an attentive person who cares or a group of people who cares going like say, all right, let's, I want to see you succeed. And I'm also going to specific, I'm going to help you. I'm not mm-hmm. just going to like tell you what to do. I'm going to help you do it until it works better. Mm-hmm. And that works. Yeah. It sounds so refreshingly straightforward and, and, and simple. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Qminder is working in a quite not not very uh, in, in that sense, in not very uh, sexy industry. So you mm-hmm. have you have all these online, you know, customer support uh, uh, software. Most of the the, the interesting stuff uh, and and big. Support traffic is, is now done, you know, through Zendesk and uh, and or Intercom or uh, it's mainly it's mainly online. Qminder um, mm-hmm. is is uh, is is uh, helping with the physical location where mm-hmm. where let's say the the um, the physical uh, part still exists. So, what would be some of uh, like some tips to how to improve the, um, the, 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 the effectiveness of, of the physical customer service where, where you actually need someone? Um, well, it depends on what scale of business you're talking about. Uh, I, I myself was not ever a manager of a physical location. I'm not I have a hospitality background. So, you know, ask me to design a restaurant or the perfect waiting room. And I would say, why, why would you need a waiting room? Anyway, but, so I'm not the person to ask. Like I found that the best way to do it was actually figuring out a way of getting other people to do it. So mm-hmm. we had, you know, at some point 20 operations leads, we call them, who are like middle management. They would run some region of customer service in some vertical And they were smart people with very diverse background who sat in the middle and kind of got squeezed on both sides, like like Mm -hmm. management teams other people often do. And I did two things. I said, okay, firstly, we're going to set this target for, no, I didn't actually, I didn't even set, set this target. I said, each of you, I want you to set a target based on your past performance in customer service metrics and where you think you can go. So if you got like, a trailing average of 75 MPS. Can you get the 78? Can you get the 77 or 85? Mm-hmm. Just you tell me and then tell me how you're going to do it. For example, we're going to increase our resolution rates, reduce our wait times, whatever. Then set your target for the next quarter. And I got every single manager to do that. And then I just added them all up and got the weighted average. And I said, okay, this is our new quarter target. You set it. Congratulations. And it was always higher, by the way, than whatever I would have set for them. The oh, targets wow. they set were higher. And they told me how they were going to get there too. So that's magic. And then I watched them do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and each, every single location had a different way of doing it. It just depended on what they had going wrong. So our New York hub was just crazy busy all the time. So they just needed to hire, I think at some point, five more people than another five more people. They just loaded the room with people until their wait times went down. They could get through the crowd of people. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in one point in the LA hub, which was also busy, they just did things like put out a coffee machine and magazines. Suddenly the wait time complaints went down. Their scores went up. 
So again, I didn't come up with these things. Other people did them. And I think like having people who are engaged and giving them authority and then asking them to set their own targets and manage themselves. Was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really worked. I mean, I don't know. I didn't hire those people directly. So I didn't, I didn't find them. But we had, um, you know, we had a, firstly, we're, they were hired all, by GMs all around the country in different ways. But they also had a good community among themselves that would help each other out. It wasn't a competitive company where everyone was like racing to have the top score. Um, for example, like uh, we just knew that New York was always going to be different because to be a New York driver, you had to have certain regulations, uh, like you had to buy a license. And it was so expensive that you basically had to do it full time or there was no point. So all our New York drivers were full time. Our Portland drivers were not full time. They were part-time and they were a different type of person that were doing it for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So of course our scores are going to di be different in every region. You have different sized hubs, uh, like a New York hub, you can't just buy a giant piece of land in New York. It's expensive. So it's going to always be smaller with different kinds of drivers, more serious issues. Um, and this, this meant that like we, we never could compare locations directly with each other mm -hmm. and we just help each other out as a result, you know, mm -hmm. do what you can. And so having that culture where everyone's supportive among members of a, a team that is building that good customer service experience, mm -hmm. but, and, and is individually empowered to do whatever they can mm -hmm. um, with someone like actually collecting information and measuring it in some way and helping them share it really helps. We used to always run this, also run this meeting. I ran this meeting called um, the Hub Half Hour of Power which uh, became the hour of power later. I don't know. I just try to make meetings interesting because meetings are boring. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, in it, we'd have stories about like what people have done and you know, photos of stuff. It was, it was not, I tried to make it like a show as much as possible, like a presentation where we'd like show, like highlight people and get people to do the talking. And I did as little talking as possible. And uh, that was, that was part of how we created that culture. I think you need to, yeah, you need to really make sure that culture is strong. Mm -hmm. and then, so that, that's how you do it in a multi-region location. If you have just one region, I don't know. I think you have to just hire the right location manager, someone with a really good customer service background who's mm -hmm. taken a cafe or a, a hospitality place from not so good to good or another mm -hmm. retail app from not so good to good. Mm -hmm. See what they can do. Yeah. But I love what you said about... Uh, giving them the, or empowering them to make their set their own goals and make their own decisions. Mm. Uh, but uh, that again sounds like such a um, simple thing, but, but very very profound, <laughs> as you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like one of those things I probably would teach you in business school, but I didn't go to business school, so I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of times not going there also. Um, <laughs> Gives you the freedom of, of, of making it up, making it up, or, or just using the common sense, you know, instead of someone someone else teaching you this. Yeah, yeah. So let's start wrapping this up, um, Dana. Um, at the moment, you so you mentioned you have a lot of web pages <laughs> that you're tending <laughs> the, the the garden of web pages that you're uh, that you're tending. Um, what 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 do you do nowadays? 
since uh, 2018, I quit to become a blogger. Um, we started with a website called Discover Discomfort, which was really just a website about us um, learning languages and immersing ourselves in different cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, the goal of it was that um, was to help other people kind of bridge cultural and language gaps with mm-hmm. difficult parts of the world. You know, mm-hmm. for example, we had uh, my partner and I, we both quit Lyft to, to go and do this. Uh, we had very limited, limited understanding of the Middle East. So we decided to move to Egypt and learn Arabic for a while. We had limited understanding of, of East Africa, so or of Africa in general, the continent. So we just moved to Tanzania and Kenya, learned Swahili, lived there for a while, tried to figure it out. And we want to keep doing this. Um, along the way, we started creating other websites for things that we're interested in, and some of them have taken off and some of them haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a part-time motorcycle journalist as well. Things like that. And we just got good at making websites, and we really enjoy... Um, Actually, my favorite part of it, aside from the fact that it pays for us to live, is that people will write to us every day, definitely, often like multiple times a day and say, hey, I thank you so much for this, Mm -hmm. you know, or this was really helpful. We're just discussing something. And I said, we just make these friends all over the world, you know, Mm -hmm. like I was sending someone a message today, um, some Brazilian pair of doctors who read our website, got inspired, went and learned Arabic in Egypt as well, visited the same places we went to. And, you know, it's like, these are like really cool people who I hope to meet one day. And I have, we have so many of these in our, in our email inbox. Unfortunately, none of them with us here in Brisbane, Australia, mm-hmm. but many of them around the world that I hope to meet at some point. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the greatest part. It's like this global community of friends that we're building. Mm-hmm. So as much as like, I've written a lot since leaving Lyft and it's been writing about stuff that was both, that was work related or personal related. And I would say that the number one reason I write and that I would encourage anyone to write is the same reason I would encourage anyone to show up to work, which is like you will, you will make friends and you will help them. And it gives you such joy. Like, uh, you know, I, if I'm not helping anyone, then I will have no motivation to do anything. Mm-hmm. But if I know that like someone if I know someone appreciated what I'm doing for whatever reason, then if I could eat that, then I would. Mm -hmm. So I just try to marry those things, you know, make it into like, at least get paid for it as well. Mm -hmm. So that's, you have the the perfect balance of doing what you you like and actually making a living, living after it as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, yeah. It's always a work in progress. Yeah. So you must be, you must be also then um, really um, missing uh, traveling then. Yeah. Yeah. We, we try to travel without moving. Um, we, you know, Brisbane is a pretty multicultural city, so we can eat a lot of you know, Asian foods and foods from around the world. I'm learning Korean while I'm here. I also started uh, learning German, I think about a year ago now, mm-hmm. no, less than a year ago, mm-hmm. just for fun. Cause I thought, I needed a break from difficult languages and German's pretty easy compared to Korean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just building up that like feeling, like I, I study languages to feel like I'm somewhere else, but also next year when we're in Korea, I'll have a good foundation to go and just speak Korean and be in a school. Sounds, it's very, very inspiring. Um, uh, Dana, so people can find you at, um, uh, what was the blog called? Discover Discomfort. Discover Discomfort. 
yeah. they, uh, how else can they connect with you? Uh, are you active on LinkedIn or 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 is the blog the best I, way? That's one of the best ways. I also have my personal website, hushman.net, mm-hmm. that I, where I write about professional stuff. My other things, you'll probably only, you'll find that if you're interested in it, but I don't need to really mm-hmm. sprout it. I don't need to plug yeah. it. Okay. Dana, thank you so much for the interesting conversation. Uh, I hope thank we get to, I hope we get to travel soon again. And I'll come uh, and visit for sure. And come, and absolutely, come, come All visit right. us. All right. Okay. See you later.